Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It was a different time. You have to keep reminding yourself of that in order to make sense of the terrible things that happened. During the 1960s, there was still this naive sense that bad things like this didn't occur. Not in broad daylight. And certainly not to little children. It was a real scorcher that day in South Australia near Adelaide. Thermometers read as high as 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. It was January 26, 1966, Australia Day, and the three Beaumont children, Jane, Arna, and Grant, aged nine, seven, and four, respectively, asked their mother Nancy if they could take the bus to Glen Elg Beach, unsupervised. Today, such actions might seem outright neglectful, but the children had made that five-minute bus ride many times before without incident. Just the day before, for example... Their father had dropped them off at the same beach before heading off on what was supposed to be a three-day business trip to Snowton. And like I said, back then it was a different time. After everything that happened, and news broke out about the children's disappearance, a major paradigm shift spread all over Australia. Practically overnight, parents began keeping a more watchful eye on their children and cast a more suspicious gaze on every stranger. But by then, it was far too late for the Beaumont children. During the 1950s, the suburbs of Adelaide were rated the best place in Australia to raise a family. It was here in Somerton Park that Grant Beaumont, went by Jim, settled with his young wife Nancy and started having kids of their own. Jim was a former serviceman turned traveling salesman. It was too hot to walk or ride their bicycles that day. So that morning around 10 a.m., Nancy gave Jane some change for bus fare that she tucked away in her off-white purse. The children were dressed in their swimsuits and shorts, and they carried beach towels with them. Jane was the oldest and therefore considered to be the responsible one. Nancy expected them to return home no later than 2 o'clock for lunch. So when the children didn't return by 2, she began to get worried. By 3 p.m., she was practically jumping out of her skin. It was around that time that Jim arrived home early, expecting to surprise the family. Nancy frantically explained the situation. Jim sped off in his car to the beach to look for the kids. When he didn't see them, he rushed back home to pick up Nancy, and the two of them began driving around the neighborhood looking for them. Nancy's initial thought was that the children drowned or met some other terrible accident. But... That didn't make sense, not in broad daylight, and certainly not on a crowded beach on a national holiday when there were scores of witnesses everywhere. That led Nancy toward a much more terrible realization, that if the children hadn't drowned, and certainly wouldn't have run off on their own, that could mean only one thing. Someone 
had taken them. Thus began one of the most famous missing persons cases in Australia history, as well as one of the largest manhunts ever conducted there. But after more than 50 years and dozens of suspects having been looked at, the Beaumont children have never been found. I'm Nate Hale, the Where's Waldo of the podcasting world, and this is The Conspirators. By 6 p.m. that evening, Jim and Nancy Beaumont had alerted the police that their children were missing. The police soon cordoned off the area and began searching the streets for Jane, Arna, and Little Grand, assuming if they had wandered off they couldn't have gotten very far. Their initial belief was that the children had simply lost track of time and gotten lost. By nightfall, when they still hadn't found the children, they began sending out boats with spotlights to light up the coastal waters in case the children really had drowned after all. The local police department was relatively tiny and soon found themselves overwhelmed with what would turn out to be such a massive operation. At the time, the department only had one sergeant and four detectives, along with all their patrol officers. Hundreds of volunteers joined in the search. Within days, searchers were pouring over sandhills, airports, rail lines, interstates, and nearby buildings looking for the children. Over the next few days, officers and volunteers moved on to searching all the sewer drains around the beach. They even drained the boat harbor after one witness claimed to have seen the children near that area. Police officers and cadets waded through waist-high mud, poking around for any sign that the children may have drowned, but to no avail. As police began to question witnesses who were present that day on the beach, they began to form a timeline of events as to the children's whereabouts throughout that morning. Around 11 a.m., the children were spotted playing in a sprinkler in the park near the beach. One of the most alarming eyewitness accounts was told to police by an elderly woman who said she saw the children near a foot-washing station in the company of a strange man. The woman told police, although she couldn't quite put her finger on it, something about the man playing with the children just felt off to her. He was described as tall and blonde with a narrow face. She estimated him to be in his mid-thirties with a suntan complexion and a thin to athletic build. He was dressed only in Speedo swimming trunks. The children seemed comfortable around him. And one thing in particular that struck the elderly woman as odd was when the man actually helped the children get dressed. The man later reportedly approached a few other witnesses and asked if anyone had been around the children's belongings because some of their money was missing. The Beaumonts described their children, and Jane in particular, as shy so that the idea that they would have been acting so comfortable around this stranger seems particularly out of character. Investigators theorized the children may have met the man before. This theory appears to be corroborated by an offhand statement Arna made to her mother on an earlier occasion that Jane had found a boyfriend down by the beach. Although Nancy didn't think much of it at the time, later on, though, it's all she could think about. Later that morning, the children were seen at nearby Wenzel's Bakery where they purchased some pasties and a meat pie. This was unusual too because the children paid for the food using a one-pound note. The shopkeeper told investigators that the children informed her that the meat pie was, quote, for the man. 
The fact that the children even had the one-pound note was significant as well, since they did not have it in their possession when they left home that morning. Nancy had given Jane six shillings and six pence, enough for bus fare. One theory that's often been put forth is that if a stranger managed to steal the children's bus fare out of Jane's purse, that would leave them particularly vulnerable to a seemingly kind stranger, who may have offered to give them a ride home, and perhaps even give them some money. Other eyewitness statements were a little more difficult to pin down. A postman claimed to have seen the children walking alone close to 3 p.m. along Jetty Road, headed away from the beach in the general direction of home. The children were reportedly holding hands and laughing as they strolled along the main street. Later, when the postman was questioned again, he realized he got his time wrong and actually saw the children walking along Jetty Road earlier in the day. Several months after the disappearance, a woman reported to police that on the night of the incident, she had seen two girls and a boy entering a neighboring house that she believed to be empty. Later, she claimed she saw the boy walking alone down a lane when he was chased down and roughly caught by a strange man. Police were unable to get a proper explanation out of the woman why she didn't do something at the time she saw the boy being snatched, nor why she waited several months to report any of this to police. Over the following months, police had to track down more than 10,000 leads that poured into the department. The case gained international attention, eventually making its way to Europe, where it was brought to the attention of a famous psychic from the Netherlands named Gerard Coisette. The psychic was initially asked to give his impressions on what he believed happened to the children. He claimed to have used his psychic abilities to draw a detailed diagram of what he said was the path the children walked that morning, and told reporters that he believed the children had been buried alive. Corset's story soon became a media sensation. He was then flown to Australia to continue his search in person. No one seemed to question the fact that the story he kept telling changed constantly and offered no significant new clues. Once in Adelaide, he led investigators all around town and eventually identified a warehouse within the vicinity of the beach. He led investigators inside to a particular spot in the newly poured concrete floor that he pointed at and said the children were buried there. Now, there was no evidence the children had ever been inside the warehouse, nor an explanation how they could have been buried beneath the warehouse's floor. But the psychic insisted and the newspapers ate the story up. The property owners rightly balked at having their newly refurbished factory torn up. Police viewed Croisette's information as a big waste of time, but soon the property owners bowed to public pressure after $40,000 was raised to have the concrete floor torn apart. No trace of the children was found. Decades later, in 1996, the building would undergo demolition, during which the entire area was searched, only no evidence of the Beaumont children was ever discovered. About two years after the disappearance, Jim and Nancy Beaumont received two letters that were purportedly written by Jane, in which she described meeting a man who had taken the children in to care for them. Police compared the handwriting on the letters to samples of Jane's known handwriting and believed they might have been authentic. In one of the letters, the children's self-appointed guardian offered to return the children to their parents, and offered a meeting place and time. The Beaumonts went to the meeting place with a police detective, but no one showed up. Sometime later, a third letter arrived at the Beaumonts' home, telling them that the man had planned on returning the children, but he'd become spooked when he saw Jim and Nance had disobeyed his orders and showed up accompanied by the police. Instead, the man told them he decided he would keep the children after all. In 1992, new forensic examinations of the letters proved them to be a hoax. By then, fingerprint technology had approved and people were able to trace them to a then 41-year-old man who had been a teenager at the time. 
The man claimed to have written the letters as a joke. Because of the amount of time that had passed, police declined to charge him with a crime. In the years that followed, there were two other major abductions that many investigators have tied to the case of the Beaumont children. On August 25, 1973, 11-year-old Joanne Radcliffe was one of 13,000 spectators attending a football match at the Adelaide Oval with her parents. She was seated next to four-year-old Kirstie Gordon, who was there in the care of her grandmother. Joanne's parents had taken her to the Adelaide Oval many times before, and she knew her way around. She soon became bored and began striking up a conversation with the four-year-old. When the little girl said she had to go to the bathroom, Joanne offered to take her. The Ratcliffs had a few rules Joanne was expected to follow. Joanne was only allowed to go to the bathroom while the game was being played, and not during the last quarter, nor during any of the breaks, in order to avoid the massive crowds. The girls went to the bathroom early in the game and returned without incident, but the second time they left, during the third quarter, the children didn't return. Numerous witnesses would later identify a narrow-faced man around 40 wearing a brimmed hat and a tweed jacket who was seen in the company of the children. An assistant curator for the stadium later told police he witnessed the man and two young girls behind the grandstand trying to coax a kitten out from under a car. A 13-year-old boy who was working at the concession counter said he saw the man scoop up the younger girl and begin carrying her toward the southern gates, with Joanne frantically trying to catch up. Joanne reportedly began angrily tugging at the man's jacket and kicking at his shins before the man shouted at her and grabbed her by the arm, dragging her towards the gates. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the same incident and noticed the young girl crying, but everyone just assumed it was a family squabble and chose not to report it at the time. A police sketch was drawn of the man in the hat. Side-by-side comparisons of the sketch of the man at the Adelaide Oval bear a striking resemblance to the sketch made of the man in the swimsuit who was seen in the company of the Beaumont children years earlier. Yet another well-known child abduction and murder would lead police toward another prominent suspect in the Beaumont children's disappearance. On August 26, 1970, seven-year-old Judith McKay and her five-year-old sister Susan were only 200 meters away from their home in Townsville when they were abducted on their way to the bus stop to go to school. Their naked bodies were discovered two days later in a dry creek bed. Both girls had been raped and stabbed multiple times. They had each been choked to death before the sexual assaults took place. The killer had strangled Susan to death while Judith had sand forced into her nose and mouth, blocking her airway. Their school uniforms were found neatly folded along with the rest of their clothes near the bodies. As in the other cases, several eyewitnesses saw a slender man talking to the girls that morning before they went missing. Some witnesses reported seeing a man leading out of a car talking to the girls near the bus stop. The same man was later seen at a service station three hours later and nearly 85 kilometers away. Two girls were seen with him in the car and were reported to have been crying and demanding to know when they were going to get to see their mommy. Although several witnesses gave descriptions of both the man and his car, both of these eyewitness descriptions were dismissed by police as not credible, as it wouldn't be until 1998 before anyone was ever charged in the McKay girls' murders. That was when an 88-year-old Queensland man named Arthur Stanley Brown was charged with 45 counts of sexual assault, including the rape of six children ages 3 to 10 years old, as well as the murders of Susan and Judith McKay. Many eyewitnesses came forward years later identifying Brown in several of these incidents, and even identified the type of car he owned as being similar to the one seen driven by the man who took the McKay girls. Brown himself even confessed twice during the 1970s to a couple of acquaintances that he had killed the McKays, although he later disputed both confessions. 
But despite all this, during Brown's first trial, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. A second trial was later blocked after it was determined Brown was too senile to be tried again. He died in 2002. Brown would become listed as a major suspect in both the Beaumont children's disappearance and the abductions at the Adelaide Oval, largely because many people have noticed the similarity in his features to the eyewitness sketches of the suspect in both cases. Despite efforts by police to show that Brown was ever in Adelaide around the time of both abductions, no solid connection has ever been made. Another prominent suspect in the disappearance of the Beaumont children is Bevan Spencer von Einem, who was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1984 for murdering a 15-year-old boy named Richard Kelvin. Von Einem was part of a close-knit group of a dozen men known as The Family that preyed on young boys during the 1970s and 80s. It's believed The Family may have been responsible for dozens of kidnappings, tortures, and sexual abuse of young boys throughout Adelaide. Four of the five murders tied to the group remain unsolved to this day. Only Von Einem was ever charged with the murder of Richard Kelvin. Now, as gruesome and horrifying as the family murders were, their M.O. doesn't quite fit with the abduction of the Beaumont children, mainly because all the victims the family purportedly kidnapped were male and several years older than the Beaumont kids. What led police to initially tie Von Einem to the Beaumont children is that an informant identified only as Mr. B told investigators about an alleged conversation he had with Von Einem in which the man reportedly boasted of abducting three children from a beach several years earlier. According to the informant, Von Einem said he took the children to, quote, perform beautiful surgery on them, and that he, quote, connected them up. One of the children supposedly died during the procedure, so Von Einem decided to murder the other two as well and later dumped all the bodies in the bushland south of Adelaide. Not only that, but Mr. B also testified that Von Einem was also the man who kidnapped the two children from the Adelaide Oval as well but Mr. B proved to be an unreliable witness. At one point during his lengthy testimony, he admitted to have been an active participant in one of the family rape and murders, and at the same time went on to claim he should be given the reward money for solving the mystery of the Beaumont children. Ultimately, police determined Von Einem was not a credible suspect, and the convicted killer was ruled out in the Beaumont children's disappearance. Over the years, Adelaide police continued to look at hundreds of potential suspects in the disappearance of Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont most of whom were already suspects in other child abductions and murders. In 1975, James O'Neill was sent to prison for life in the murder of a nine-year-old boy in Tasmania. He reportedly confessed to several acquaintances that he was also responsible for taking the Beaumont children. In 2006, O'Neill lost an injunction in court attempting to stop the broadcast of a television documentary titled The Fisherman that attempted to link him to the Beaumont case. But once again, the evidence linking him to the Beaumonts is tenuous. Despite being repeatedly questioned about the Beaumont children, O'Neill refused to confess to police, and again, it's difficult to specifically place him in Adelaide at the time of the abduction, although it's said that his work in the opal industry did give him numerous opportunities to pass through Adelaide. The fact is, I could keep going down the list of potential suspects and explaining time and again how very little there is to tie them to the Beaumont children. Most of these were some very bad people convicted of doing terrible things to children. But it wouldn't be until the publication in 2013 of a book by Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins titled The Satin Man, who are considered to be two of the leading experts in the case, that perhaps the most credible suspect of all in the children's abduction would be brought to light. This was a man who had never been on the police's radar before. A man who may have been the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Buttercloth, the world's most comfortable shirt. And I'm not just saying that either. Do you hate wearing dress shirts? Well, Buttercloth has come up with a revolutionary new kind of shirt that makes me feel like I'm wearing my favorite t-shirt. The company was started by a young fashion designer named Dan Tran. Dan is a Vietnamese immigrant who grew up learning to sew sitting in his mother's lap. He and his family emigrated to the U.S. when he was 20, and from there he worked hard to put himself through one of the best fashion design schools in the country. Dan has worked for some of the biggest fashion brands in the world and he used to wear t-shirts to the office, but then he'd have to change into stiff, scratchy dress shirts when it came time for meetings. So he began to wonder why he couldn't create a new kind of dress shirt that was every bit as comfy as his favorite tees. So Dan went and developed a revolutionary long fiber cotton that he called buttercloth. This fabric was so revolutionary that it caught the attention of the TV show Shark Tank, where investor Robert Herjavec loved it so much he invested $250,000 in the company. After trying out several buttercloth shirts recently, I have to say that was money well spent. These shirts are remarkably comfortable. They make you look like a Friday night, but you'll feel like a Sunday morning. The special blend of 100% long fiber cotton goes through a unique manufacturing process to make the shirts light, stretchable, and as comfy as your favorite t-shirt. And their six-way stretch and exclusive double-finished construction means they'll hold up to all sorts of wear and tear, too. My personal favorite has to be the one I own from the Icy Cotton Collection, which is actually woven with a special process that infuses cotton with organic mint fibers to create a natural cooling effect. Whether you need big or tall, long-sleeve, short-sleeve, buttercloth has you covered with whatever style shirt you need. I love my buttercloth dress shirts, and I'm sure you will, too. Right now, Buttercloth is offering the Conspirators listeners 20% off your first purchase. Go to Buttercloth.com slash TC to receive 20% off your first full price order. That's Buttercloth.com slash TC. And now, back to the show. For 40 years, the case of the missing Beaumont children just grew colder and colder. While interest never fully waned in Australia and occasionally the story would be brought up in newspapers and television true crime documentaries. No new viable suspects ever appeared, which meant police remained no closer to ever finding out whatever happened to little Jane, Arna, and Grant. Then in 2006, a book was published titled The Searching for the Beaumont Children by Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins that many people describe as the most definitive book about the case yet. The publication of this book would lead the authors to be contacted by a woman who might have held the key to unlocking the mystery once and for all. One day, a woman named Angela Phipps called Stewart with new information about the case. She said her ex-husband Hayden saw a documentary about the Beaumont children, and he revealed to her that he thought his father had murdered the children. Now, at first, Alan and Stewart were skeptical. They had heard hundreds of such claims before and always came up empty. But when they went to speak to Hayden and began to follow up on his claims, a startling number of things he told them began to add up. Hayden Phipps told the authors that his now-deceased father Harry was a pedophile, and that he personally witnessed his father with the three Beaumont children in his backyard on the day of the disappearance. Not only that, but he also insisted the children's bodies were buried in the sand pit just outside his father's old factory. 
Harry Phipps died in February 2004, so there was no way to question him directly. But Stewart and Allen continued to investigate the stories told of them by Angela and Hayden, which would then lead to even further investigation by many police and private investigators as well. This would eventually cause the two authors to publish a follow-up book titled The Satin Man, in which they lay out the case that Hayden's father, Harry Phipps, was the man responsible for abducting and murdering the Beaumont children. Hayden told them a nightmare story of growing up with his father who routinely molested him throughout his youth until he finally grew old enough to fight the man off. Throughout their investigation, Harry Phipps was someone who never appeared on the police's radar. He was a respected and wealthy businessman in Adelaide. He also just happened to live within walking distance of Glen Elk Beach, where the children vanished from. According to Hayden, although Harry put up a respectable public face, behind the scenes he was a complete monster. When Harry Phipps was a child himself, his mother allegedly raised him to be a girl, and even dressed him in satin dresses she made herself. As bizarre as it sounds, this would lead Harry to have a lifelong obsession with satin, an obsession which turned into sexual arousal whenever he wore the fabric. This odd fetish of his was something that was so well known to his family and inner circle, everyone instinctively knew never to wear the fabric around him. As Harry grew older, he became a successful businessman, purchasing the Castelloy factory in North Plimpton, not far from Glenelg. Over the years, Harry grew wealthier and more connected to politicians, the clergy, and other powerful businessmen. But through it all, dark rumors continued to swirl around Harry and his son. People noticed there was something not right about the two of them. There were rumors whispered about abuse. Many people noticed that Hayden hated his father with a passion that no one could quite explain unless there was something going on secretly between them. Hayden would eventually confess to investigators all the terrifying details about his father's satin fetish and about the sexual abuse he suffered as a direct result. Harry Phipps even made his own satin pajamas and dressing gowns that he kept in a special room of his house that no one was allowed in. Hayden recounted the many nights each week where his father would dress himself up in satin and come to his room. According to Hayden, just the swish-swish sound of the fabric was enough to excite Harry. That noise would have just the opposite effect on Hayden. He came to associate that sound with the knowledge that his father was coming down the hall toward him. Even years after Harry's death, that same swishing sound would be enough to make him break out in a terrified, cold sweat. Hayden said his father was a violent alcoholic behind the scenes who kept firearms all over the house and routinely threatened to kill any member of his family who crossed him. After Hayden came forward, police and other investigators began to gather a massive pile of circumstantial evidence that pointed to Harry Phipps being the perpetrator in the Beaumont children's disappearance. For starters, consider the man's appearance. Harry Phipps bears a striking resemblance to the descriptions given by witnesses of a lanky, physically fit blonde man seen with the children. A side-by-side -side comparison of the sketches made of the suspect at the beach as well as at the Adelaide Oval abductions both look startlingly like Harry Phipps. It's true that Harry was in his late 40s at the time of the Beaumont's abduction, and some witnesses have said the suspect they saw was perhaps in his 20s or 30s, but Hayden told authorities his father kept himself physically fit and looked quite a bit younger than his actual years. He was a respected businessman in the community, which was a far cry from what most people thought of as a potential pedophile. One thing about Harry's wealth that stands out, though, is the way he used to flaunt it by handing out one-pound notes to Hayden and his friends to get them out of the house on weekends, so Harry could be alone with his satin collection. You may recall that someone gave the Beaumont children a one-pound note that they used at a bakery the morning of their disappearance. This was something that was corroborated by 
Hayden's son Nick, who actually lived with Harry for a time and told investigators that Harry would give him one-pound notes as well. Nick never fully claimed to being the victim of sexual abuse by Harry, although he did allude to having some sexually inappropriate experiences while living with his grandfather. In the book The Satin Man, Nick described several incidents where Harry rubbed against him in a way that made him uncomfortable while they were swimming. Then in 2018, a television documentary was aired that included a bit of an interview with Hayden Phipps in which he told the producers that he personally saw Harry on the day of the Beaumont children's disappearance with three young children matching the kids' descriptions on Australia Day in 1966. Hayden said he observed this from a hidden position, seeing Harry leading the children through his backyard into the house, then never saw them again after that. Later on, he also said he heard four gunshots go off. Even this didn't strike Hayden as particularly unusual, since he was used to hearing Harry fire off guns. He also admitted to witnessing his father loading some heavy PVC bags into the trunk of his car later that day. At the time, this didn't strike Hayden as particularly unusual, since Harry used such bags to transport his satin gowns around town. Hayden also mentioned that his father had a curious habit of just cruising around town for no apparent reason, implying that he believed his father may have been looking for potential victims. As previously mentioned, Harry Phipps' house was within a short walking distance of both Glenelg Beach and Collie Reserve, the last place eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the children. Harry's Castelloy factory, where Hayden claimed Harry buried the children's bodies, was only a short drive away as well. While Stewart continued to collect circumstantial evidence against Harry, he went to go speak to Harry's widow, who was his second wife, as well as his former housekeeper. Her real name was Daisy Ward, although after marrying Harry, she began going by the name Elizabeth. When Stewart came to see her, Elizabeth was initially very warm and welcoming. But she did do a few things that raised alarm bells with Stewart. For one, without any prompting at all, she mentioned to Stewart the abductions at the Adelaide Oval, which was odd enough in itself. But after that, she led Stuart down into the basement of the home to look around. And there, just sitting on a shelf, Stuart noticed a white child's purse. A white child's purse, very much like the one Jane Beaumont owned and had with her on the day she disappeared. Stuart casually asked Elizabeth about the purse, and then she began acting flustered and offered a hasty explanation that she had just purchased a purse at a thrift store although she didn't offer any real explanation why she would have purchased a child's purse in the first place. Nor why, if she just purchased it, did it end up here on a dusty shelf in the basement. Stewart told the police about the purse, but by the time they returned to the house to look for it, Norma claimed to have thrown it out, and the purse was never seen again. This strange incident became yet another dead end in the case, but once The Satin Man was published in 2013, it renewed public interest in the case because now they finally had a credible person of interest. This also meant that other people began coming forward with their own stories that helped corroborate Hayden's story. This was helpful because over the years some people have attempted to poke holes in Hayden's tale. Hayden died just a few months after giving that television interview in which he claimed to have witnessed his father with the Beaumont children. Some people have pointed out that Hayden may not have been a very reliable witness because of his own lengthy history with alcohol abuse and mental illness. It is true that some details of Hayden's story changed with subsequent interviews, and a few details didn't stand up to scrutiny, but by and large, the main details of his abuse and of his father's secret life remained consistent. Then in 2017, a woman came forward with a story of her own that while she was a teenager in the 1970s, Harry Phipps abducted and raped her in a location not far from his Castellay factory. She had seen a documentary on TV about the Beaumont children, and as soon as they showed a photo of Harry Phipps, she immediately identified him as the man who raped her, 
She told authorities she came from an abusive household and she kept Phipps' assault under a secret because of fear that her own father would beat her if he told her. Then came the story of two other Adelaide men who came forward and claimed that Harry Phipps hired them to dig a large hole for him in the grounds of his factory right around the same time as the Beaumont children's abduction. This occurred during the long Australia Day weekend when the entire factory was closed and no one would have been around to observe what they were doing. At the time, the two men were both teenagers and Phipps led them to his Castelloy factory where he sat by and ordered the men to dig a hole approximately seven yards long, one yard wide, and two meters deep, with no explanation as to what they were digging it for. When the men were finally finished, Harry paid each of them with a one-pound note and told them to get lost. The two men led an excavation crew to the location where they claimed to have dug the hole, but the excavators dug up the area and found nothing. Later on, though, the two men realized they had led everyone to the wrong place. After it was revealed that sometime after 1966, the gates of the property had changed and the entrance was in a different place than it had once been. Once again, the men led investigators to what they believed to be the right location. Ground-penetrating radar was used to scan the area and they found what was described as some sort of anomaly. Police dug in that area as well, but eventually called off the search after finding nothing but animal bones. Even still, by that point, police were officially ready to call Harry Phipps a suspect. Despite that, there has still been no direct evidence outside of the witness testimony and many suspicious coincidences that suggest he may have been the person who abducted and murdered the Beaumont children. So, once more, the case stands in a sort of state of limbo, waiting for the next piece of evidence to be discovered. Hayden and Angela Phipps are now both dead, so they can't be questioned anymore. For a few years, Nancy and Jim Beaumont continued living together in the same house in Adelaide and hoped that one day their children might find their way home. But the strain of not knowing what happened to their kids grew too great for the couple, and eventually they divorced. Nancy Beaumont died in a nursing home in 2019 at age 92. At the time of this recording, Jim Beaumont is still alive and living in Adelaide. But the time is growing short for him to finally learn the truth about what happened to his three children, Jane, Arna, and Grant so many years ago. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Kyle, Daniel, and Alyssa for signing up and helping support the show. And thanks to all my other Patreon supporters for helping us out as well. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show can get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, as well as access to our growing library of bonus mini-episodes. I also want to point out that we recently launched our brand new Tee Public merchandise store where you can get all sorts of great Conspirators merchandise with a bunch of different designs. There you can find mugs, t-shirts, phone cases, and a whole lot more. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help us out, another great way you can do so is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and spreads the word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on many of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to follow us or even drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. You can even email us at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.